Hey guys, welcome to tonight's California Haunts Radio. It's great to be here. I hope you're hope you had a great day. Uh, the weather here is stormy, stormy in a lot of ways. It doesn't it isn't normally stormy. In that Northern California, you get worse weather where it snows and it's cold. Um, Sierra Nevada part of California, Sierra Nevada part of California, you get weather that's snowy and stuff. Here is either there's <laughs> there's either two temperatures. It either rains and it's cold as heck, or it's hotter than hell. It goes up from the over the over hundreds. Anyway, welcome. And Larry is here tonight. Larry Jorgensen to talk to us about Coca Cola Bottling Company. And I'm excited about this because my father. I th- I don't know if he actually worked there. He, he he kind of alluded to that when he lived in Cleveland. But there's actually a, you know an old Coca Cola building just outside. Just on, 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 ugh, ugh, my mouth work on one of the streets out here in Sacramento. That uh, it's still old. It says even the side says Coca Cola Bottling Company. So it's kind of cool when you go by because it's 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 a really old 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 building. Anyway, without further ado, let me get our guest in. Hello, Larry. Hey, how are you doing? We made it. Yeah, we made it. I'm sorry. I thought I sent you the link. I apologize. No problem. We we're here. All right. Well, I was telling everybody about your book. So why don't you tell me about you? Well, about me, I'm an old news dog, and I got interested in this uh, Coca-Cola history because there's so much of it around us, and the more I got into it, the more I thought, I need to put this into a book. It's it's just amazing. Uh, you know, I don't write novels, uh, not, nothing, nothing like that, but I am fascinated by recent history and coca-cola certainly has a great recent history fast i know well i mean it goes it goes back a long way too doesn't it well actually it's interesting the first bottle uh the first time coca-cola was bottled was in 1894 and everybody says well yeah it must have been atlanta no it wasn't it was in vicksburg mississippi um, in fact, Coca-Cola for about five, six years didn't think anything at all about bottling. They thought it was a dumb idea. But um, needless to say, uh, bottling eventually took off and a lot of people across the United States started bottling Coca-Cola and, uh, let's face it, made a lot of money doing it and helped create the world's best known brand, Coca-Cola. How did they come up with the recipe to create Coca-Cola? Well, actually, um, 
Pemberton was, uh, he was the one that invented the syrup and he had been injured in the Civil War and he was trying to find some way to relieve the pain from that injury. And he was a, a pharmacist of sorts and he devised a combination using both the cola nut and the coca leaf. Now, let us not be confused with cocaine because he didn't make cocaine, but he did use the coca leaf and, uh, and some other ingredients, and it did relieve his pain. So he thought, I have something for medicinal purposes and uh, started selling the syrup to drugstores. That's where it started. And they would mix a little syrup with the uh, charged water, and it would be basically a good health, healthy drink to relieve pain. And that's what he intended it to be and um, didn't realize that it would become so popular because of the taste, and uh, it, it grew from there. And like you say, did, did he license that? Like, like when people wanted to bottle it, did he start li li you know, licensing it out, or is that how it worked? Well, that 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 in itself is an interesting story because um, it was five years after it was first bottled in Vicksburg, Mississippi, that two young enterprising young lawyers from Chattanooga thought, you know, this Coca Cola ought to be bottled. And they, they went to uh, Atlanta and met with Asa Candler, who at that time owned the syrup manufacturing, and convinced him after several days that they would like to purchase the rights to bottle Coca-Cola all over the United States. And he really thought it was a, he told him, this is a dumb idea. He said, this is really a dumb idea. But they they finally convinced him. So he sold the rights for the entire United States, except Mississippi, where it was already being done. He sold the rights for a dollar. And, it, and it, I've been told he never bothered to collect a dollar. And he told these two young entrepreneurs from uh, Chattanooga, if this doesn't work, I don't want you to come crying back to me. I think it's a dumb idea. So they go back to Chattanooga. This kind of answers your question on how did it happen. They go back to Chattanooga, and between the two of them, they've got $1,500 and the rights to buy Coca-Cola all over the United States. And they thought, how are we going to do this? They opened a little bottling plant of their own, but certainly that didn't bottle much Coca-Cola other than for the areas around Chattanooga. Well, the light went on. It was like, wait a minute, we've got the rights. Let's start cutting this pie up into pieces and we'll start selling the rights, the territory. You know, it's the old franchise thing. Um, we'll start selling the territory to people that would like to bottle Coca-Cola. Now, they took it a step further. If uh, you bought the rights to bottle Coca-Cola, say you were in Paducah, and you bought the rights, they gave you a 50-mile area, but they also required you to use the real Coca-Cola syrup in manufacturing, which made sense. That's the way you made Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the, the, the real hook to that was that 
every gallon of Coca-Cola syrup that these new bottlers would purchase, the original two that sold them the franchise would get a commission on that sale of syrup. So they, they sold you the rights to bottle. You had the territory. You had to use the syrup. But when you bought the syrup, they got a commission on it. Not a bad deal for two guys in Chattanooga. And that's really how Coca-Cola took off. You've got it kind of well. It kind of reminds me of what happened with the, similar things with McDonald's too. Because I remember read, I read Ray Kroc's, you know, the book about Ray, Ray Kroc and all that. Right, it's interesting. Yeah, it is, and it fortunately it was a great product, and it is a great product. And and once people tried it, and and other bobblers heard about it. They also would get a franchise for a territory. See, a lot of these bottlers were in existence, but they were bottling, you know, sodas, uh, flavored sodas, orange, lemonade, and, of course, in those days, good old sarsaparilla. Mm -hmm. So they simply got the rights to bottle Coca-Cola in their existing little plants, and most of those plants were simply hand-operated, uh, you know, put the bottle under, fill it up, give it a charge, and put a cap on it type thing. That is absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about it, like you say, I was thinking that when you first came on, I was thinking about sarsaparilla because that's about the closest thing in taste to a Coke. But, I mean, even though the taste is different, but that's about the closest, you, you know what I mean? It's the closest thing in, in taste texture. Right, right. And and it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a flavor that, once you try it, you want to go back and get some more. And that's what that mm -hmm. that's why it grew. So these yeah, independent distributors, so how did they do it? They, I mean, obviously, you know, they had to load it on their own trucks and, and get it out, or or did they just open their own like store, you know, stores to sell it in? No, they 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 immediately realized that for this to grow in their 50-mile radius or whatever, they needed to put it into stores. And they would do things to get people to try it, but their main thing was get it into stores. Well, you know, in the early 1900s, um, there were no trucks. There was a lot of a lot of uh, mule-drawn wagons and things like that. In fact, one Coca-Cola bottler actually delivered his in a wheelbarrow for a few few years. But uh, whatever they could do to get it into the stores and to get people to try it, one of the things, the tricks that they would do. If they were bottling the other flavors and they had a store that wanted a case of mixed sodas, they would put a couple bottles of Coca-Cola in there in that case and uh, get it out so people would try it. And the next thing you know, the stores were ordering Coca-Cola. Uh, but you had to get people to try it. There was a, um, a Coca-Cola bottler in Santa Fe, New Mexico who realized the way to get people to try it was to make them thirsty. And you make them thirsty by selling them a bag of salted peanuts at a football game, and then you're there with Coke to refresh the thirst. So there were all, all sorts of ways to get people to try it, and that was the answer. Once they tried it, it grew. Well, I can imagine that because the people have to remember there, there were no uh, slick advertising things going on like you know like there are now, so they had to probably have a lot of creative ways to uh, market this. Well, and the the best way in in the early years for Coca Cola, and it exists today, is those 
signs, everything from the outdoor murals to the big neons to whatever. And you know, the, the murals that were painted back in the early 1900s, those have become actually treated as pieces of historic art in many communities. And there are efforts to save them and restore them and so forth because they were so classic. Um, you know, um, the, um, the owner of Coca-Cola at that time, Asa Candler, had so many signs all over the country that he once boasted to the movie producers in Hollywood, there will come a day when you cannot produce a film outside without having a Coca-Cola sign in the background. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And some of that art's beautiful. I mean, it really is beautiful when you see some of it, especially the stuff from around World War II as well. You know, where they had, not, I don't know if it was Rosie, Rosie the Riveter, but the women that were drinking the Cokes too. You know, right. that was cool stuff. It, it was. And, and, you know, going along with that, um, how about Santa Claus? Coca-Cola. That's right. Had their artist actually developed the the Santa Claus that we recognize today as Santa Claus. I always say that Coca-Cola kidnapped Santa Claus, but uh, that that Santa that everybody recognizes today was created by the artist at Coca-Cola. You, you may remember, I think it was like two years ago, the post office came out with a set of four Christmas stamps that had four different Santas on them. And each one of those Santas was a Coca-Cola designed Santa. They didn't put Coca-Cola on the stamps, obviously, but it, it was a Coca-Cola Santa. That's true, I remember that, I remember that. Um, now, when they were open factory, it, I mean, obviously it grew to where there were bigger and bigger factories. Did that cause any issues or, or did somebody, you know, did, did somebody just decide that they were gonna centralize anything or like that or did they just keep it spread out like it was? Well, you know, it, it started out at one time, there was like 12, 1300 Coca-Cola bottlers all over the country. And, and those bottlers would have little sub plants because, you know, transportation was tough. Mm -hmm. As transportation got better and as roads got better and we got bigger trucks and so forth, uh, there became a consolidation. Some of the plants that had sub plants in communities closed those and they moved to the singular plant. In other cases, like happened in all industry, some people came and bought out others. And I think today there are probably in the United States less than a hundred actual Coca-Cola bottling companies. Now these companies have bottling plants all over and, and they have distributors all over, but the actual company that owns the plants, that owns the distributorships, there's probably less than a hundred. Many times when they would buy uh, a plant uh, they, they would merge it with their existing plant, but they would keep the structure and use that as a distribution center. Uh, in our book, uh, we tell the new lives of some of these plants that now have become uh, small shopping centers, they've become uh, uh, brew pubs, they've become entertainment facilities. Uh, a lot of them have a new life and uh, people are still enjoying going to that building for entertainment and refreshment. 
Were you able um, during the research on your book? Were, were you able to actually go visit, go, go see some of the plants? Oh yes, yeah. saw many of them, and it's interesting. Some of the old family plants, and when I say family, like plants that have been the Coca-Cola franchise has been in the family for five generations. Obviously, those plants have changed, but it's amazing um, how they've kept up with technology. Uh, you know, Coca-Cola wasn't always canned, and Coca-Cola used to come in deposit bottles, you know. All of a sudden, we came into the world of, you know, throwaways. Throw away a bottle, throw away a can. And Coca-Cola corporate told their bottlers, you better get ready for this. You're going to need to get into canning. You're going to need to have less expensive bottles, in other words, non-returnable bottles. And um, they had to adapt accordingly. A lot of the uh, bottlers, uh, when it came time for canning, that was an expensive uh, addition to them. And many of the, the bottlers would go together and, and create a canning plant, sort of a co-op, that they'd all get their canned Coca-Cola from, and it would eliminate the expense of one bottler having to set up a canning line. Wow, that's interesting. I have a question in the chat room. Um, I'm supposed to ask about the trays with the Gibson grills and movie star starlets on them. Well, they, they used, I don't know too much about that, except I know that it, when you go through Coca-Cola art and you go back through the calendars and you go back through the things like the collector's trays, there was always the use of pretty girls and movie stars. Um, so some of them became actually stars after they were on the Coca-Cola trays. You know, one sort of... Um, Develop the other, uh, but they used they used people, and they used um, caricatures. Uh, for example, the Sprite Boy, you, you see him on some of the old Coca Cola advertising, and he's that little soda jerk that sometimes he had a a Coca Cola bottle cap on his head, and sometimes he had a soda jerk uh, cap on his head. But these these were ways that Coca Cola whether they were using a fictional character like Santa or, or names that you recognize, people you recognize, again, it, and they do it today. Look at the things they're involved in today. Look at the people who have their uh, endorsements on Coca-Cola products. It's no different. Uh, it's just taken on some new directions. And who doesn't want a Coke, a Coke can with your name on it, right? Oh, like they're doing now. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, um, there are there are several artists that became famous designing Coca-Cola calendars, and there there are some people that have every one that's ever been made. I think the first one came out in the 1920s, and um, they've come out every year since. Is Coca-Cola the Smithsonian? I'm sorry. Is it what? Was it in the Smithsonian now? It's in the Smithsonian. I don't know what's yes, it is, come to think about it. There are some certain aspects of it that are in the Smithsonian. Um, some of the old uh, modeling equipment and uh, some of the techniques that were used. Uh, but it's not there so much as this is Coca-Cola 
being there and represented, but it's things that Coca-Cola did back in the early days that are represented. So tell me, um, you, you did all this research, and I, I know, um, like for each city, you know, obviously they had to have workers in each factory. Did, did they do anything for the workers other than just pay them to, to like bottle, or did they have little communities or anything like that? Well, Coca-Cola, um, according to the bottlers that I've talked to, would say that back in the early days, the employees truly loved working there because it was so unique and they were creating a product that people loved. Um, how their pay ranked to others, I'm, I'm sure it was comparable. I don't think they made a fortune, but I think they were paid fair wages. As far as benefits, I, you know, in the early 1900s, what were benefits? You know, take home a case of Coke, I guess. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't much. We didn't have 401s and, uh, you know, retirement plans and profit sharing and all that. It was, here, here's a good job and a good product, and people will love you. Let's go sell it. For people that don't know about the bottling process, can you describe that? I'm talking like the bottling process in you know, the 1800s until things got automated. What was it like? Well, the, the early bottling was, was really a hand, hand and foot operation. The, the bottle was uh, put one at a time into a unit and a very small a percentage of the Coca-Cola syrup, very thick syrup, was put into the bottle, and then it was filled with water and carbonated. It, the uh, carbonation was shot into it, and then it was capped. And this was done by hand and by foot. You know, it was a foot-powered machine, and the bottles were placed in there, and and you pushed down on the lever and it put the cap in and it was all manual operation. You know, it took a long time um, before it, it came to the point where we had machines. And, and even then they weren't replacing people as much as people were there to make sure they were working right and to uh, replace bottles on the line and to, and to make sure the bottles were washed and so forth. So it was evolution. It went from, basic fillet one at a time by hand to where we are now. You go into a Coca-Cola plant now and the bottles of the cans just whiz by you. I mean, it's amazing at the speed and the accuracy and creating the same good quality product in every container. My question is, is how long, um, you know, I, you may not know this, this answer, but you know, obviously, like you say, nowadays, it's, it's all, you know, computerized, everything's whizzing by. Back then, if you know what, how much production could they get out of a smaller factory a day? In the, in the early days, uh, I can recall talking with um, families and they would say, well, yeah, I remember when great granddad started this thing, um, you know, if he could get out two, three cases a day, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. and, th and then he'd hire somebody to help him. And what they do, and this was a case of many of them in their early, early days, they would, they would bottle in the morning and they'd make maybe 10 cases between the two of them and they'd load them up and then they'd go to town with their horse and buggy and, and they'd, they'd sell them, they'd deliver them. And this was the daily routine as they got bigger, added more people, added more 
more horses and buggies, and away we went, you know. Uh, but it was a, strictly a, a, a labor of love. They loved what they were doing. They knew they had a product that was going to grow, and they were going to grow with it. Um, when did uh, machines come in? Well, I, I think machines, you know, they came as a, as the product grew. Your early machines were back in the 1930s, you know, 1920s, 1930s. It didn't take long for it to become mechanized to some extent. But uh, as we know it now, the, they're constantly, even now, coming up with new machines and, and new ways to, to make it even uh, faster and safer. Uh, so it's a it was an evolving thing. The first, I guess you would call, um, maybe sort of not man, man-made, man-operated. We're at 1920s, 1930s in that time period. And then once that took off, we know American ingenuity, and it just every year it seemed like there was a new, a new. Uh, addition, a, a better pro, a better machine. The same thing with, you know, the vending machines. Mm -hmm. um, the old vending machines are collector's items. And mm -hmm. it, it was the same thing. It was a company in Chattanooga called Cavalier that constantly came out with new Coca-Cola vending machines. And I'm sure you've seen the, the one, in fact, today, the ones you go into like a, a McDonald's, and you've got a machine there. You go and push a button for any one of probably 20 products, you know. Uh, so it's evolved to that from I can remember as a, as a child, you go in, you put your, your nickel in the machine, and, and you, you kind of force a bottle out of it. You slide it down the little runway, and you had your bottle of Coke. So that has certainly come a long ways. And we, and we put peanuts in our Coke, too. Oh, that's right. They had the bottle cap opener on the machine, too. That's right. Yeah. And just reach right up and pop it right off. I had one um, one bottler tell me that uh, his where he sold a lot of his uh, Coca Colas, there were also the other bottled beverages sold in that same machine, and he would have his salesman bring home the the caps the from that machine. And they would sort the caps out to determine how well they were doing in that particular location. You know, were there so many knee highs and were there so many Coca-Colas and so forth. A, a very basic early way of uh, uh, checking your marketing and, and seeing if you need to be better. You know, I was just thinking too, and people don't realize this, is that Back in the older, the old, I'm olden days, but the older days, people um, would drink. I, I would think that they would drink it warm because a lot of the people back then drank their beverages warm. That's so it was right. a transition for people to start going to cold beverages, right? That's right. In fact, uh, one of the bottlers out in Iowa told me the story that uh, when he started bottling and getting it into stores in the wintertime, he would talk to the store owner into taking the empty cheese boxes. So of course, he was in Iowa. They get a lot of cheese out there. Mm -hmm. And they would take the cheese boxes, put them on the windowsill, and fill them full of Coke and snow. So if a person wanted a cold Coca-Cola, they had one ready to go. So, yeah, refrigeration came along later in the game. 
and uh, it certainly helped the sales of Coca-Cola. That's, 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 that's kind of what I was thinking along that line. So what do you think was, I mean, you know, as the, as the big spread, was it word of mouth mostly that, that spread it? You know, for, for people to drink it, like like you say, you know, they, they had to put samples out here and there so people would get a taste for it. But I mean, it had to be like more word of mouth back then, right? It, pretty much, although you know, Coca Cola was always innovating in getting their name in front. I mean, they would get so involved in a community, uh, everything from you know, not just the signs, but what does the community need? Do you need a park? We'll build you a park. Do you need a baseball field? We'll help you build a baseball field. They were constantly involved. People almost felt, we better drink some Coca-Cola because they're doing so much for us. It was kind of that, you know, we're going to support the people that support us thing. So they had many ways of becoming your friend. And, uh, and it's a friendship that, that, it continues today. People believe in Coca-Cola. It is a friend they can trust. I want to go back on something. You mentioned putting a peanut in your Coke. I've heard people do that. Why do people do that? <laughs> you know, there's a, a, several theories to that. Uh, one of them being that uh, in the early days, you know, and we say early days, 30s, mm -hmm. when Coca-Cola uh, I mean, when the when peanuts were, were starting to be packaged in these little cellophane bags, um, it just sort of became unnatural. People would buy a Coke and they'd have a bag of peanuts and they'd use the they'd tear the end off that bag and use it as a funnel to dump the peanuts in the Coke. Why it started? Some some people believe it was because there were some workers that for their break they wanted more than just something to drink they wanted something with it so they got the peanuts and they started dumping them in the coke and it went from there but it, it i mean there's that country country and western song you know or i was country when it wasn't cool and and right. she talks, talks about putting peanuts in her coke you know it, it's just a, a thing that that caught on and uh, heck we did it as kids we did it it was the thing you did you put peanuts in your coke now, how did Coke end up over in Europe? Was it because of World War II and the guys, and the guys, you know, taking it with them over there, or how did that happen? Absolutely, that was that's another example of Coca-Cola taking care of people. When when World War II broke out and we had all of our soldiers were overseas, Coca-Cola said, "All right, they need to have Coca-Cola," and. Coca-Cola actually set up bottling plants, small bottling plants, to serve the U.S. soldiers that were in the war. And believe me, they made friends who came back from the war and were so dedicated to Coca-Cola. That's how it got started in Europe. And, of course, from there, um, non-soldiers, civilians, picked up on the drink and it's in every country. You know, you and I are doing an interview right now. Do you know I have done interviews about Coca-Cola in Europe? I, I did an interview a couple weeks ago with a radio station in Dubai. And I asked the man, I said, this is great. Why? And he said, because people in Dubai love Coca-Cola. So it's, a, it's just an example of how 
um, I've learned that Coca-Cola is worldwide, and, and it certainly is. Uh, you see a lot of their advertising, and, that, and the, the, the bottle collectors that collect the different Coca-Cola bottles, they collect the bottles from Japan and Brazil and wherever with a different writing on them to add to their collection. Well, I can tell you from experience, I was in Europe um, I'm just, it's a, a, a while ago. I'm, I'm, I'm old now. I was in Europe when I was about 12, 13 years old and hungry to be exact. And I remember there's photos of us at our, ta at our dinner tables and there must have been about like, like 20 Cokes on the dinner table. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was, you know, that's, that's what they had for, for cold drinks. And, you know, back, back then, a lot of Europe was still drinking warm, you know, was still drinking warm stuff. And we were just dying for something cold. And the guy said, well, we have Coca-Cola. And we went, really? Cold? Yeah. So he brought it out. And they were the same size bottles that they used. And it wasn't like the big bottles that we have now. It was the same size bottles that they used back in the 50s. The old six and a half ounce bottle. Yeah. And, you know, and that bottle is such a, a, an iconic bottle that they actually, many stores have that bottle now in six packs because people have such memories of that old six and a half ounce bottle of Coca-Cola. Uh, it's just, it, it's special memories. And again, that's Coca-Cola creates memories. You know, I sound like I'm a Coca-Cola employee. I'm not, but I'm, <laughs> I've become so fascinated by the product and the way it attracts people and that it builds memories that, um, you know, it's just amazing. And that's, that's what is attributed to the worldwide acceptance, acceptance of Coca-Cola. Do you find yourself, after seeing the art and stuff, do you find yourself wanting to find that art? I mean, I'm not talking about the real antique stuff, but like, like say you're over at some craft store somewhere like um, Hobby Lobby has stuff like that, you know, for your walls. Do you find yourself wanting to find stuff like that? No, and, and I'm not a collector. There are... Okay thousands of coca-cola collectors they are wonderful people they have a big annual convention every year and they the the thing that they're after is not the coca-cola you're going to see in hobby lobby that's all reproduction i know that's what i'm saying yeah yeah they're after the real stuff the old rusty sign that somebody found in an abandoned store or or, or country stores you go into country stores and there's a lot of original Coca-Cola signs and, you know, memorabilia that are there for sale. They're, and it's the real thing, like the trays. You know, the trays have been reproduced many times, but if you turn them over and you read the back, it'll tell you this is a reproduction. If you find a Coca-Cola tray that is not a reproduction, you've, you've got something that's very valuable. And there's a lot of them out there. Because again, Coca-Cola made a lot of them. And you know, there are, um, I know one particular Coca-Cola plant where I, I went there and did the story on them. And a few years prior to that, they had celebrated their 100th anniversary. They did that by making, having made a special commemorative tray. And they gave me one. And I kept it. Although I'm not a collector, I kept that one because it's an original. It's an original from a plant, and they only made a limited number of them. So there's a there's a there is value. I'll tell you value in a in a Coca-Cola bottle. You know the bottles, the Coca-Cola bottle that we know today, 
was the result of competition between six glass companies that Coca-Cola challenged to make a bottle that people would know is Coca-Cola. And in 1905, they, they selected a bottle that was made by a glass company in Indiana to be the iconic Coca-Cola bottle. Well, that, for that 1905 particular meeting, the, the company made six bottles of that particular model. And as did the other people who were companies that were competing. Well, when, when Coca-Cola selected that one, they were told that they wanted one to put in the Coca-Cola archives and that the other five were to be destroyed. That was 1905. Well, one of them escaped. Actually, four were destroyed. One went into archives and somebody got one. The reason we know it's one of the original prototypes is it says 1905. The first Coca-Cola bottle in production was 1906. Well, the 1905 bottle came up for auction about a year and a half ago in California, and it sold for over $150,000. One bottle. Wow. And there are people that collect Coca-Cola bottles. The, the neat thing, the old bottles, if you, if you look at the old bottle, it would have on the bottom, embossed, the name of the plant that, that produced that Coca-Cola. So if the plant was a little plant and they only made a few thousand bottles or whatever or had the, that bottles made for them, then that bottle is certainly worth more than a, a bottling plant that had hundreds of thousands of bottles made. So collectors collect bottles of specific plants. Some collectors try to get one of every plant, you know, and I, I do know uh, a... a uh, a bottler up in Minnesota who actually bottled the last six and a half ounce bottle um, in production. And he has got 110, um, I'm sorry, 1,010 bottles from different Coca-Cola plants that he's accumulated. And they have all the different names on the bottom. So he's got almost every plant that ever bottled Coca-Cola in his collection. Hear that, Raj? Next time you're bottle digging and you come up with a Coke bottle, double check those, ba those bad boys. I have a brother-in-law that does bottle digging. So he might get lucky one day. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, we'd all go buy a bottle of Coca-Cola and you'd look at the bottom of the bottle and the one that had the bottle from the furthest away had to buy the next round. That's cool. That's really cool. I have a question. What did Coca-Cola do to stay in popularity versus Pepsi and Dr. Pepper? What, what did they do to, to what? To, to maintain their popularity against Pepsi and, and Dr. Pepper. Well, Dr. Pepper, that's kind of a friendly relationship. And uh, it's definitely two different types of beverages, two great tastes. And um, you'll find a lot of the Coca-Cola bottlers also distribute Dr. Pepper. It's not a competitive drink, so to speak, you know. Uh, now, the Pepsi thing, 
there is an interesting story there. Um, you, you may remember the days of the Pepsi Challenge, when Pepsi challenged people to try their drink and to try Coca-Cola, which were in unmarked glasses, little paper glasses. And people would come up and they would try them. And woe be it, more people were selecting Pepsi. They didn't know it was Pepsi until they tried, you know, after they tried it. But they were, the pe Pepsi was starting to win this Pepsi challenge. And it actually caused Coca-Cola to come out with what was called the new Coke. You may remember that. It lasted, it lasted about two years. People could not stand it. There were little old ladies in grocery stores that would see the Coca-Cola delivery man and threaten him if he didn't bring back her Coca-Cola. But the, the reason that happened, if you and to this day, if you taste the Pepsi, and if it's to your taste, more power to you. Pepsi is sweeter. Mm -hmm. Well, when you taste two drinks, just take a taste. That's all. You don't drink the whole drink. Chances are you're going to pick the sweeter beverage. But if you are to drink the entire glass, the other one usually wins out because it's not as sweet. And Coca-Cola took the results of that Pepsi challenge to create what was the new Coke. They thought, this is it. We've got to be like Pepsi. We've got to be sweeter. People didn't like it. And it finally took Coca-Cola two years to respond to the public's outcry. We want our Coke back. And it's back. And I think about a year ago, just for fun, Coca-Cola did a, a limited edition of the old, as they called it, New Coke, just to bring it out to see what would happen. And same thing happened. People don't like it. You know, so. But Coca-Cola is involved in so many things. You know, I have recently bought, uh, and I don't consume a lot of Coke. I'll be honest. I like it. But I recently bought the new Coca-Cola coffee flavor. And it's made with coffee. It, and it comes in those, those yeah, I call them skinny cans. You know, that's the new trend, the new skinny cans. And I'll tell you what, it's good. I found it's even better. I like they have three flavors. They have a vanilla and a dark. I forget what the other one is. But anyhow, I like the dark. And I found if you open it up and let it sit until it gets flat, then the coffee flavor really comes through. Uh, get rid of the carbonation. So I, I have a new a new Coca-Cola friend. It's the dark coffee flavored Coca-Cola. It's pretty good. I was going to mention that about the new flavor. I couldn't remember what it was. So that's what it is. It's the coffee one. I couldn't imagine that. But I'm well, going to have to try that out. Yeah, and they 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 come out with with new flavors occasionally. They they had the orange that came out about what a year year and a half ago, and if you remember the old orange dreamsicle, it kind of tasted like that, um, and and it it sold well. They have a vanilla coke. You know, get in line. And Coca Cola has so many other beverages, so many other products. Um, I don't know if your store handles. The New Life Milk, but that's a Coca-Cola product. Really? They bought 
They bought that milk company from the people that developed it, and Coca-Cola now owns New Life Milk. It comes in those um, kind of tall uh, plastic-shaped uh, uh, containers. Uh, I think everybody knows that Coca-Cola not only has their own energy drink, but they also own a lot of the portion of monster energy drink. And it's just typical of, you know, get in line with what's going on and be part of it. And Coca-Cola has done that throughout the years, and that's why they've stayed on top. As a company, okay, like you said, uh, the original owners had sold, you know, portions of it, you know, for distribution. Is there still one original owner that, that that's head of it all, or is it is it now just a big old corporation? Well, there's still a Coca-Cola Corporation. Okay, and and they do two things. They make the syrup first of all, that is used in every bottle of Coca-Cola, and okay. they and they create all the new flavors and and all the things that Coca-Cola corporate own. Coca-Cola Corporate also owns some bottlers. There are some of the bottling companies that are owned by Coca-Cola Corporate, but many of them are owned by little, medium, and small Coca-Cola bottling corporations. The uh, largest one is in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. The second, called Coca-Cola Consolidated, the, the second largest is in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Coca-Cola United. And they have, for example, United has plants uh, or distributorships in uh, seven southern and southeastern states. Um, so you've got, you've got little Coca-Cola plants that, that families have held on to because they dearly love the business. They wouldn't sell it for anything. And then you have the other other ones that have sold. Recently, uh, there was a family Coca-Cola plant in Tullahoma, Tennessee, that had been owned by the family for three generations. And they ended up selling to a large Coca-Cola uh, bottling operation out of Chicago. And uh, so they're now part of that operation. So it's you know, it's it's the way it is in business. The, some of the people prefer to stay small and to serve their market with a product they love. Some of them, and what happens, like in many businesses, you know, the business is passed down one generation to another generation, and maybe about the fourth generation, they're not particularly enthused about doing that. So it goes up for sale. Uh, many times that happens, and that's again typical in business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hey, what about cherry coke? Did they use real cherries in it? They they use a cherry flavor, um, and the and the flavoring business it, it itself is an interesting business. If you look at the people, the companies that make flavors, you can get a flavor for anything. You name it, there's a flavor, there's an artificial flavor available. And and that's what so many, look at your yogurts, for example. How many different flavors of yogurts? You know what? The flavors are primarily created by the use of a flavoring ingredient that is simply made by a flavor ingredient company. You know, you go out and you buy a... Um, 
uh, a coffee-flavored yogurt, one of my favorites, by the way. And I know that 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 is not coming. That flavor is not coming. Somebody's brewing coffee. It's coming from a company that makes a coffee flavor ingredient. And for people that don't know about this and don't understand, I learned it in Europe. I, I had no idea that this is how sodas were made back in the old days. Why they call it soda pop. And I remember um, orange drinks and everything. The way the, the stuff used to, used to be made was they had seltzer water, and they had flavoring. Yeah. You know, for that seltzer water, you put the flavoring in there, added the seltzer, and that was your soda. Right, and and some of them, like for example, Orange Crush would use mm -hmm. some real orange. And Orange Crush was a great drink, and the bottle was was pretty unique. You know, but it it, it didn't survive. Um, so, and you had um, brand a brand that is extremely not extremely is well known. Let's put it this way: is that is well known in the South called RC Cola, and RC Cola is actually a spinoff from a company that started making a drink competitive to Coca Cola back in the early 1900s called Chiro Cola. Well, Coca-Cola was successful in shutting them down. So they went from there to making knee highs, and from there they made RC Cola. So they're still around, but they're, they're RC Cola because Coca-Cola got a, a judge to uh, prohibit them from using the term cola in their name. That, that has since been overturned many times, but at that time it was enough to uh, cause that company to no longer make churro cola. How long did it take you to research all this? Well, I've done two books. The first book took me two and a half years, and I loved it. I mean, I met with people. I went places. I saw things that were uh, just fascinating. Uh, in doing the first book, um, I had a lot of people come to me and say, did you know about? So in, in, when I did the sequel, it took just a little over a year to do the sequel, because which is called Return to the Coca-Cola Trail, because so many people in reading the first book came to me. Whoa, we lost him. He'll be back. He got cut off somewhere. Uh, anyway, this has been a fascinating, uh, it's almost, the hour's almost up, and I'm, I'm learning a lot about Coke, and like I said, um, I'm sure he'll come back. <laughs> we lost, um, yeah, like I said, there's a Coca-Cola bottling company building on Stockton Boulevard here in Sacramento that's down by the um, Shriners Hospital, and that's been there for as long as I can remember as a kid, and I remember my dad telling me stories about people who worked there, and that's why I was always wondering, because my dad knew so much about it, whether... Uh, at one point in his colorful life when he lived in Cleveland, Ohio, whether he had worked, you know, worked there or not. So that's part of my history with it. Up, oh, Larry's back. Hang on one second. We lost. Somehow we, we lost, got lost. Yeah. We got you. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you got my total answer, but the first book was two and a half years. The second book was a little over a year because I got so many great references from people who read the first book and came to me with leads and said, why don't you put this in your next book? So it's, it's, it's been great. I've met some wonderful people and have enjoyed doing uh, the book. Whether or not there'll be a third one, I don't know. Um, maybe we should quit while we're ahead. 
Well, the, doing the research, like you said, you, you went out and talked to people. Were you able to like um, go to libraries and stuff, you know, to, to find out more info or how did that work? Yeah, I did. I, I, the libraries and the historical associations were a big help to me in finding old photos, uh, finding pieces of history that sometimes even the families didn't know for sure, and, uh, and kind of putting the whole picture together. So the, the book is a combination of um, information obtained from families, from existing bottlers, from historical societies, from libraries, from old newspapers, from archives. I did not go very often to the Coca-Cola corporate archives mm -hmm. because I found that they concentrate mostly on Coca-Cola corporate. And I, I wasn't after corporate. I wanted to talk about, which nobody had done before, these bottlers all over the country who had really made Coca-Cola happen. It wouldn't have been for the bottlers who said, yeah, we want to sell your product, Coca-Cola. It would have been a longer battle for Coca-Cola corporate. That's yeah, that's true. That's that's interesting. You know, when you talk about bottlers, what I think of is the um, the first scene of Laverne and Shirley. You know, you know when, when they're at Schlitz and they're working in the yeah. factory. That's what I see. Right. I, I see the glove going around. You know. Well, um, I, I I can relate. I uh, spent my uh, fair amount of time in Milwaukee as a college student. And what's a better place to be a college student than in Milwaukee, where they, at that time there was a lot of, a lot of breweries, including the Schlitz, uh, and a lot of uh, opportunity for a poor college student to, to 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 visit a brewery and get you know at the end of the brewery you got your free end of the tour you got your free samples. That's really cool. I remember taking those tours years years ago. Um, tell me. After doing all your research, you know, and looking into the company, what do you think is the biggest highlight of it all? I think the biggest highlight is the dedication and the involvement of these people at, at Coca-Cola, whether it's a little bottler or whether it's corporate. Their dedication to the product and to making uh, a relationship with the consumer is is what has made that 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 product so well received they care and i've seen it so many times and things they've done i mean look at okay we care a simple thing like the charlie brown christmas nobody wanted to, to put up the dollars for Charlie Brown Christmas. Along comes Coca-Cola says, we'll save old Charlie Brown and his Christmas tree. And it's existed ever since. And, and that's typical. I mean, that's, a, that's an example that's throughout the country, but you see smaller examples in your own hometown of where they're doing and giving back. And all that's doing, they're, they're not, you know, this is not just being generous, they realize they are building a relationship that will come back to them. That's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. What do you think, and I know this question kind of came up earlier, but what do you think the future of the Coca-Cola bottling company is? Do you think it's going to keep going and expanding? 
Well, I think they are so sharp in, in looking at trends in soft drinks and in other beverages and in other products that they have three different, as I've been told, anyhow, three different divisions in product development. One division is a, a bunch of guys and gals that say, well, yeah, this, this product definitely is going to be a hit. They've got a, another group that says, well, this product may have potential. Let's look into it. And then they've got another group that says, I don't think this one will ever make it, but we'll take a look at it anyhow. And that's what they do. They're constantly looking at trends. Um, if you would have told me when I started this thing, what, four or five years ago, that Coca-Cola would be selling milk, I just said, what? Milk? Yeah. There's, I mean, how about how about Minute Maid orange juice? You guys know about Minute Maid orange juice. That's a Coca-Cola. Well, lost him again. He'll pop back in. I didn't know about milk. I didn't know about Minute Maid orange juice. I know there's a connection with uh, Pizza Hut and uh, Pepsi. You know, I think there's there's different there's different connections with with what they, you know with what these companies sell. This you know this is Pat. Larry's back. He's trying. He's working out. There he is. I got him. Computer needs or your computer. One of them needs some Coca Cola. I think it's my internet. My my internet's not the best here. Yeah, I need some Coca Cola for sure. <laughs> needs a little pick me up. Hey, you know, now that you were talking about those uh, things that Coca Cola is involved in selling, I didn't know about Minute Maid. Can you tell me a few others that, that they're involved in? Now you broke up on that one, computer okay. again. Repeat the question. Um. The stuff that Coca-Cola actually sells, like you were talking about the milk and the Minute Maid. Can you tell me some other stuff? Well, we know, for example, Monster. Uh, they're involved in that. Um, all I know is I've had Coca-Cola distributors tell me that they've got over 150 different products that they handle. And... I guess I'd have to walk through a warehouse to tell you what they all are because I really don't know. I was interested in Coca-Cola, and that's where I put the bulk of my research. But I know these guys. Were the, that's why when you see a Coca-Cola truck, it's a semi. It's not a little delivery truck. Those trucks go out, and they have pallets of this and pallets of that. And uh, the stores will get a you know, the, the salespeople will go to the store and say, how much of this do you need and how much of that and how much? And that all gets palletized on one pallet for Joe's grocery store. So when the big semi pulls up at Joe's, his order is on the pallet. They took it off, take it off the truck and away they go. You know, Coca-Cola has so many products. The best way to do it is to, is to put them on a pallet, market for that store, and he gets a little Lost him again. I think it might be either his internet or mine. The weather's really bad here, so my Comcast internet isn't the best. So, um, unfortunately, he keeps popping off. But uh, it's happened. It's the first time that that's really happened since we've been doing the show. I'm excited. This show This show has been great. I learned so much about Coke. Here he is. So try him again. You know, if you guys want me to go away, I mean, I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's a ghost or something pushing the buttons. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, no, that's been, this has been a lot of fun, Charlie. I've, I've enjoyed it, even if uh, the computer gets mad at us sometimes. <laughs> I've had a ball. I want to let you know that. And I would love to have you on again at some point, because I think I think this is a fascinating topic. 
Are you there? I'm here, but oh, okay. there was a there, there was a sound. There were okay. bells or something over over what you were saying, so I wasn't I That's wasn't hearing anything. Where the bells are coming from? Anyway, um, I would love to have you on again because this has been a fun topic. Well, you know what we, what we could do the the next time, if you if we could make it through it the next time, um, <laughs> we could we could concentrate on the sequel. Uh, okay. the, second, the second book, which has got some really interesting stories. We talk about the, the town of Coca-Cola millionaires okay. and uh, things like that. So, yeah, I'd love to come back, Charlotte. It's been okay, fun. Okay, let's do and that. If, I'm looking for and, April. We'll get you booked. Yeah. Okay, and uh, if people right. want to see a real copy of the book, it's on the website, the thecocacolatrail.com. There we go. Thank you so much, Larry. I appreciate it. I'll be in touch later on tonight. We'll set something up for April. All right. Thank you, Charlotte. We've enjoyed. All right. You have a good one. Okay. Well, you heard the man. We're going to have him back on in April, and I'm excited about that. I'm glad everybody came tonight. Next Monday, we're going to have a different kind of show because I had to do a pre-record with 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 somebody. So uh, it's going to be a YouTube show, but I will be teasing it on Facebook and everywhere else so you guys know know what link to go to and uh, you'll be up i'll be on the chat room on that one as well via youtube and you guys can come on in at the, uh, at the california haunts youtube channel so anyway this has been a great night again i'm going to get larry back on to talk about his second book because this was all really cool stuff i can honestly say that um i want you all to have a good next three or four days and try and stay warm or hopefully the weather gets better for people that are up at the sierra nevada and and up north and we are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, www.californiahaunts.org. If you like the show, share it with some friends, maybe five people. If you didn't like the show, share it anyway. Share it with your enemies. We're trying to get, get our viewership up on this. And if you see the little ticker thing that's going down below, we do take donations. We're a nonprofit paranormal investigation team. All this stuff, all this fun stuff comes out of, out of my pocket. So, uh, yeah, we want to keep this show going and keep the quality guests coming in like Larry, coming in like Larry and stuff. And so help, help us out a little bit. I feel like the KVIE people, but that's what it is. Anyway, check out our website. Uh, we're going to be doing some major updates because we've had a lot of investigations that happened over the last year and year and a half or so. You know, we kind of took about eight months off because of COVID, but uh, there are investigations that, that we're built. You know, that, that we have to add to the website, whatnot. So. Check all that out at www.californiahaunts.org. And I will see you on Monday.